Uh, you know what sucks? Waiting. Right, John and I were just talking about this because earlier today I had to turn the iPad on and then it said it's been disabled for five minutes. And it seemed like a hundred minutes, but it was only five minutes, right? I'm not a very good waiter. One of my favorite shows is Kitchen Nightmares. Do you guys watch Kitchen Nightmares with Gordon Ramsay? These oysters are raw, or whatever, he throws it on the ground. Yes. You know. Um, <laughs> anyway, I love the ones where they go into the restaurant and the first day they get more customers than they're used to and everybody's waiting for like two hours for their food and people are screaming at the waiters. You ever been in a situation like that? Where you're just, I mean, waiting and hungry, you know? Um, or uh, Star Trek again. You guys want to talk more about Star Trek? So, okay, so there was a movie. Yeah, Stephen knows what's up. There was a movie in 1990, I don't know, what was it, 98 maybe, 99, um, where my favorite character, spoilers, but it came out 20-something years ago, um, my favorite character, Data, sort of dies, and we don't really know what happens, and I've been wondering what happens for 22 years or 23 years or whatever. And uh, anyway, so the new Picard show is just starting to talk about it, but I'm way behind, so don't spoil it, Stephen. I don't know what happens, right? But I've been, wait <laughs> I've been waiting 22 years to find out what happens to Data, right? Or I'll tell you another story about waiting. Um, you know, I told you guys before, I have my terrible stomach. Uh, I have a really bad stomach, and I throw up, and it's, all, it's a whole thing. And uh, by the way, at some point, I'm just going to say, hey, everybody, take a five-minute coffee break. I've got to go yak, you know, in the middle of a sermon. It's definitely going to happen. Uh, just to prepare you all. It's not weird. It's my whole life. Anyway, when I was younger and they were trying to figure out what was wrong with my stomach, they didn't know, and we did all these tests. It took them two years to figure out what the thing that's wrong with me is called, and uh, one of the things they thought I might have is stomach cancer, which is a pretty bad one, uh, painful, and uh, you know, high mortality rate. And so I go in to the cancer doctor, and I, I don't even remember what test. I did so many tests. Anyway, so I did a test on Thursday. The doctor calls my home. This is, I didn't have a cell phone at this point. You know, this is 2001 or whatever. Anyway, so the doctor calls the house, leaves a message on my voice machine on Friday. Hey, John, it's the cancer doctor. I really need to talk to you. Call me back first thing Monday morning. <laughs> right? That was the longest weekend of my entire life. <clears throat> I'm like, you know, 18 years old, I think I have stomach cancer. And he says, hey, good news, you don't have stomach cancer. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> like in the office, you know, they tried to save her. They did everything they could, and they did. <laughs> you know, it was kind of like that. Anyway, uh, and he says, but you have this other thing wrong with your liver. That's what he had to tell me. And he's like, and it won't affect you at all. It's just this other thing you should know that you have. Because there's some medicines you can't take. And I was like, okay, great. You know, you can leave that on a voicemail. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right, so just that long waiting. Well. Here's the thing, sometimes the people of God have to wait too. And think of how long the people were waiting in Egypt in slavery, right? They were waiting for the promise of Abraham to come true. God had told Abraham, your descendants are going to be great, they're going to inhabit this promised land, you know, the, the land of Canaan, and then 400 and some odd years goes by, and they're making bricks in Egypt, and they're trapped in slavery. And they're thinking, well, a lot of them actually just stopped believing in God. It went so long. We're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. Well, and then eventually, you know, Moses comes along and Charlton Heston's all, let my people go, and then the flies and whatnot. You know the story. Um, so sometimes, well, let me tell you about another one, though, too. Uh, another very long wait. See, in Genesis 3.15, I talk about that verse a lot, probably because it's one of the more important verses in the Bible, where God says, look, okay, you guys have sinned, and you've broken the world, uh, but I'm going to send a descendant of Eve to destroy evil 
and to destroy the serpent, to destroy the devil. And that guy is going to be the redeemer, this promised redeemer. And so then we read, and we're reading along, and we read about Abraham. The promise narrows to Abraham. And God says, look, this redeemer is going to come from you, Abraham. And then the promise narrows again at the end of Genesis. We find out, okay, it's going to come from Judah. This guy's going to come from Judah. And then, you know, you jump forward 500 more years, and we find out the promise Messiah is going to come from the line of King David. But then we read about King David's kids, right? Solomon, definitely not the guy. Right, his son, Rehoboam, definitely not the guy. You go down the list, right? Jehoshaphat, all these guys. Um, by the way, you know, that's a great baby name if you want a baby name, Jehoshaphat. <laughs> I don't see any way that kids at school could tease him about that. Um, right, and you read about all these names and, you know, all these guys. This guy sucks, that guy. Oh, he sucks a little bit less, but he still sucks, you know. And you're thinking, man, who, where is this redeemer? Where is he coming? But during that period, all along, the prophets kept showing up and saying, don't worry, guys, he's coming. Don't worry, guys, he's coming. Don't worry, he's coming. And everybody's like, where? We've been waiting forever, right? Since Genesis 3.15, we've been waiting. Uh, when is this going to happen? And then the prophet Malachi comes along. And this is how, I want to read this to you. This is how he ends his book. So the, I'm going to read the whole last chapter. It's really short, though. The last chapter of Malachi. So verse 1, it says this. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and uh, all evildoers will uh, be stubble. The day that is coming uh, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will not leave them, uh, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they, shall, they will be ashes under the soles of your feet." On the day when I will act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Okay, so here's what's going on. Malachi comes along and he tells the people, the, the great and awesome day of the Lord is coming, which is the main theme of a lot of the prophets. This day of the Lord is coming. Now, what is the day of the Lord? That's a whole other sermon. It's this layered, there's not one day, right? It's this whole idea of the day of the Lord. But basically he's saying, look guys, the day of the Lord is coming. So all these, you know, he, he says, basically, get excited. And then he says, behold, verse 5, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then that's the end of the Old Testament. So this is how the Old Testament ends. The very last part is this prophet Malachi comes along and he says, Okay, before the Redeemer comes from Genesis 3.15, before the great and awesome day of judgment, this other guy's going to come first. And he's going to be just like the prophet Elijah. Now, a lot of people thought it was literally Elijah was going to come back from the dead and come back. But I think what it means is, no, 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 this guy who's a lot like Elijah, the prophet from the book of 2 Kings, First and Second Kings, um, is going to come back, and he's going to come right before the Redeemer. And everybody goes, okay, great, we're going to wait for Elijah to come. And then guess what happened? 400 more years go by, <laughs> right? 400 years of silence. Think about that. Um, think about what was happening in our world 400 years ago. Does anybody know what was happening 400 years ago? Do the math. Yeah. Pilgrims, pilgrims were on the way. Like right now, 400 years ago, about the pilgrims were, 
you know, think, so you know the hand turkeys and all that from elementary school that you learned about, that was about 400 years ago. Now, it's not that God wasn't working in his people during those 400 years. He was, the Maccabean revolt and all that stuff. Uh, but no new revelation. There were no new prophets. And everybody was just waiting, waiting, waiting. And then still no sign of Elijah. 400 years goes by, and then all of a sudden, Luke 1, verse 5 happens. So let's start, let's read. Uh, we're going to read a bunch today, more than we did last week. Last week, we only did four verses. Today, we're going to do the opposite of that. All right, so here we go. Verse 5, look what it says. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Okay, so first, he, he places this in history again. Do you see? He says, um, uh, in the days of King Herod. So this is Herod the Great. And he, you may have heard that name, right? Herod the Great. So when you read about Herod in the Bible, by the way, there's like a whole bunch of them, right? So Herod the Great was kind of the first one. Then he had like some kids and some nephews and a bunch of other dudes who all called themselves Herod. Uh, but anyway, Herod the Great was this builder. Uh, he built the new temple in Jerusalem. And he, he wasn't Jewish, but he really wanted to be. And, uh, but he was actually a horrible person, right? The kind of guy who kills his own kid because he thinks, oh, he wants to be the king. You know? All right, so this is Herod the Great. But again, what Luke is doing is he's placing this in history. He didn't start like a fairy tale. You know how fairy tales start? Once upon a time. You know, what does he say? In the days of Herod, king of Judea. And then he gets even more specific, right? Well, there was this priest named Zechariah. Now, uh, what is a priest? So, uh, in the ancient, you know, the, the, the Jewish system, right, there were priests were the go-between with God and man. So you would go to the priest, he would do the sacrifice, they worked at the temple, they did all this stuff. We meet this one priest, his name is Zechariah, and it says he is of the division of Abijah. So I think it's in 2 Chronicles, I didn't write it down, one of the Chronicles. The priests are all organized and into 24 divisions. So the, the, the Abijah division is the eighth of the 24. And what happened, the way it worked is they would all rotate doing temple work. And so this guy is a priest of this division of Abijah, and we meet his wife. Uh, her name was Elizabeth. So she's also uh, a descendant of Aaron, again. History and genealogy are very important to the people that Luke is writing to in the ancient world. And we talked about this all, all last week. It doesn't sound like something he just made up, right? These are very specific, odd details that why else would you put it in there? Because really, the idea of her being part of the priestly line doesn't make any sense except that she was, right? It's a detail. Why would you include it? All right, verse 6, he continues. Uh, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Okay, so now we read that they were righteous. Now, how were they righteous? In what sense were they righteous? Now, Luke is using this word in the Old Testament sense, not in the Paul-Romans idea of righteousness, right? So when Paul talks about righteousness, he's talking about uh, perfection and the righteousness of God and all this stuff. When Luke's using it, what he's saying is basically they were good Jewish people and they followed the covenant, right? And that made them righteous. That's what, we don't want to press this too far. Oh, you know, Elizabeth and Zechariah were sinless. And, no, he's just saying they were good, honest Jewish people. Now, here's a sidebar. From hearing a lot of American preachers, you would get the impression that everything that we read about in the Gospels that doesn't have to do with Jesus, this first century religion, was all bad. Right? And that all of these guys are all Pharisees and Sadducees, and they're all corrupt and all this stuff. Now, that's, a lot of that is true. But then Luke, particularly, keeps giving us these pictures of these just regular people who were totally faithful to God, right? And so not everything in this first century religion was corrupt. These two are great examples of that. They're righteous before the Lord, right? Because they're doing the things that the covenant said that they should do. And there were probably a whole lot of these people 
uh, in, the, in, the, in the first century uh, city of Jerusalem or in Israel or whatever, right? But here's the thing. When we read about who are these people in the book of Luke, and this is going to come back to the end of the sermon, we want to note who they are. Very rarely are they the leaders. This is like the closest to a leader that we have as a priest. Most of the time, they're the outcasts and the people that you would not expect to be the guy that, that Jesus goes, hey, that guy, that's a pretty good dude, right? This is a faithful this is a faith, faithful person. It's the poor people. It's the outcasts. It's the people on the, the margins of society. And so there were these people in the ancient, uh, you know, in the first century Judaism that were faithful to the Lord. All right, but let's keep reading about these two specifically. Verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both of them were advanced in years. Now, barrenness in the ancient world was a way bigger deal than it is now, and even now it's like a pretty big deal to not be able to have kids. Um, in the ancient world, though, it was considered a curse from the gods. Uh, so if you, were, if you couldn't have kids, a lot of time everybody assumed that you had some sort of a sin in your life that nobody knew about, and God was punishing you for that sin, and that this was the punishment. And um, it was also economically disastrous, because they didn't have Medicare. What's the one for older folks? Medicare? Medicare, yeah, and Social Security. And, you know, they didn't have retirement accounts and all that sort of stuff. You know how you were taken care of in your old age was by your kids. And so if you didn't have any kids to take care of you, and, and by the way, this is why they had a lot of kids too, was because mortality rates for children were so high. So you had to have a lot of kids to make sure some of them survived as long as you did, so that somebody could take care of you um, when you were older. And so uh, this was the problem, right? And so here's the thing. It says they're already getting old. She was already uh, advanced, they were both advanced in years. So at this point, they probably didn't have any more hope that they were going to be able to have children. Years, they had prayed and prayed and prayed, but up to this point, they had just completely given up. Uh, keep going, verse 8. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay, so um, this is how the system worked. Each division, right, there were all those divisions, would be on duty at the temple for two weeks per year. So if you were a priest, you had to, it's like being in the National Guard, or the, no, the Army Reserves, is that the one? Yeah, where sometimes you have to go and serve. It's kind of like that, the priest's reserve. So two weeks a year, you had to be in Jerusalem, um, and most of the priests actually lived near Jerusalem anyway, but um, at the time, best estimates are there were something like 20,000 priests. Uh, who would rotate and be at, on duty at the, the temple. And so you can imagine performing this ceremony was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. This is like you know, a small-time lawyer in our context getting to, to, to be in front of the Supreme Court. You know, this is a big deal, right? Or a musician getting to play Carnegie Hall one time. You know? this, this is what's going on. And so he's chosen by lot. So this is how it worked. Every morning they would gather and they would choose lots, and they would take three different lots. Um, the first winner would get to clean the altar and prepare the fire, which is disgusting because this is where they slaughtered animals and everything. But anyway, they thought it was a huge uh, honor to be able to do this. So the first one does that. The second one um, would actually get to kill the morning sacrifice. And then the third one, the third winner, which was the more prestigious one, is what Zechariah did. Um, he would go inside the actual building of the temple into the holy, not the holy of holies, but the room right outside of it, the holy place, um, and he would burn the incense. And so every morning, think about this, before dawn, all the pious people would gather to watch this whole ceremony, and this whole thing would happen at dawn. Um, and they took this very seriously. 
So do you, the, the idea of the temple was so serious to these first century Jewish people. Do you remember the story uh, later in the book of Acts where Paul, he's been on his journeys, he comes back, and um, he takes some guys into the temple, and people think that they're not Jewish people that he's brought into the temple, which was against the rules, even though they were. And it starts a riot. And then the, the guards all have to get involved. That's just from one person who wasn't supposed to be there crossing the threshold into the temple. Right? And it just shows us how important this idea of the temple was to these first century Jewish folks. And so um, you can imagine the excitement with Zechariah and also maybe the stress, what if I do it wrong? Maybe, I don't know. Um, he, so he's set to burn the incense inside the temple building. Uh, so the stage is set, right? He's walking inside while the whole crowd is outside um, and they're praying. And then verse 11, look what happens. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. So he's, he's thinking, this is the biggest moment of my life. And I'm going to go into the holy, the holy place, which is this like sacred space, and it's supposed to be quiet and somber and everything. He walks in, and there's the big, you know, the, the, all the stuff there. And uh, there's just this angel chilling there. There's a guy standing there, leaning against the, the altar, you know, whatever it was that was inside, right? And so you can imagine Zechariah is freaked out. Here's the thing. Everybody is freaked out when they see angels in the Bible. Well, when they know they're angels and they see them. This is not a reaction that is unusual. Every time we see somebody meets an angel in the Bible, it says, you know, then he had to go change his underwear kind of a thing, right? These guys always freak out. So what is this about? Why is there an angel standing in there while he's supposed to be lighting this incense? Verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So he says, Look, dude, don't be afraid. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right? You walk in, this guy's glowing or whatever. He's like, Hey, don't worry about it. This is normal for me. Uh, and he says, But this is where it gets important. He says, Your prayers have been heard. So the question is, What prayers? What prayers had been heard? Now, commentators and theologians argue about this. Did John go inside the temple and then instead of pray the stuff he was supposed to pray, ask God for a son? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, he's probably saying, you've been praying for this your whole life. You know, I don't know whether he did it at this specific moment, but you're in there, you're burning the incense or whatever. God heard your prayer. The idea of prayer and incense, by the way, is closely linked through the Old Testament. The idea of the, the smell of the incense goes up to God, so do our prayers go up to God, right? So prayer and incense are always linked when you read about that in the Bible. And so he's in there, he's lighting the incense or whatever, and he says, look, your prayers have been heard, and here's what's going to happen. Um, oh, let me say this too. There's probably a second level to this. Not only has he been praying for a son, he's also probably spent his entire life praying for Elijah to come so that the Messiah would come, as any first century Jewish person would have been praying for. Lord, send the Messiah. Send this next part of your plan. Do this. You know, Rome is here, and they're crushing us, and we need you. This is what they thought was going to happen. We need you to lift this burden off of us. And so he shows up, and he says, you're going to have a son. Um, this reminds me a lot of the story of Abraham and Sarah. You know the story of Abraham and Sarah? Two other super old people that were not supposed to have kids. And God came along, and he said, hey, you're going to have some kids. You know, you're going to have this, this promised son. And Abraham, at first, you know, the father of faith, doesn't believe him. And he has a kid with another woman and thinks that's how it's going to happen. And it's, a, you know, it's a whole thing. It's just, it, the, there's a lot of parallels here, right? These two old folks that are not supposed to be able to have kids. And here, the angel tells him specifically, you're going to name him John. Do you know what John means with an H? I don't know what my own name means. I just looked this up. 
It means Jehovah is gracious, or God is gracious. Yeah. Um, anyway, I don't know. It's not as interesting. We have a bunch of Johns, you know. Uh, anyway, so here's the thing, though. This is a big deal. In our culture, we just pass over this. Oh, you're going to name him John. In the first century world, and in pretty much every ancient Near Eastern culture, naming your kids was like a huge deal. And so not getting to name your kids meant this is God's kid first, and it's your kid second. This was very ob- would have been very obvious to Zechariah. Um, but of course, they're still, you know, they're going to have joy, but not just them. It says many will rejoice at his birth. There's more going on here. This kid is not just going to be for you guys. This kid is going to bring joy uh, to the whole world, right? So there's a bigger plan for this kid's life. Um, so what is that plan? Well, let's read about it. Verse 15, he says, For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from uh, the womb. So he will be great before the Lord. Now, take note of that phrasing. Not he will be great. He'll be great before the Lord, because we're going to come back to that in a bit. He's not going to be a drinker, so can't be part of our small group or whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, we did our small, our, our uh, retreat this year at my mom's winery, you know, and <laughs> so John would not have fit in. I mean, also with the camel skin loincloth, you know, maybe he wouldn't have fit in anyway. Uh, so the question is, there's this thing in the Old Testament. Do you remember Samson, the story of Samson, where the angel shows up and says, hey, this is going to be this other miracle kid, and he's not allowed to drink wine and touch dead bodies. So that whole thing was called a Nazarite vow. This is not exactly a Nazarite vow. The point of the Nazarite vow, oh, and you can't cut your hair, was to set that person apart from the rest of their society, right? It was a a way to kind of live a holy life. This is not exactly that, but it's kind of like it, sort of like the diet, Nazarite vow. This is what John's going to do. He's going to be different from everybody else, and one of the ways he's going to be different is even from the womb, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so in the Old Testament, when we read about the Holy Spirit filling people, it's usually for specific purposes. The Holy Spirit filled Saul to go defeat a whole bunch of people, filled Elijah to do this, you know. There was, there's not a lot of instances in the Old Testament of, oh, this whole person's life was marked by being filled with the Holy Spirit the way we are in the New Covenant. So it was a little different. And John is kind of the end of the Old Testament. He's the bridge between the Old and the New Testament. So he is going to be filled with the Old Testament to fulfill his mission. Well, what is that mission? Look at verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient uh, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is what he's going to do. He's going to turn the hearts of the children, turn the hearts of the fathers. The idea of turning is about repentance and to leave their sin and turn back to God. Um, but there's more going on here. Again, remember the last verse that we read of the Old Testament. This is what it said. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there is no doubt that as a priest, Zechariah knew this prophecy so well. And everybody did. They were all waiting for this prophet. And now here's Zechariah in the temple, and there's an angel standing saying, hey, you know you're super old and you can't have kids. Well, you're going to have a kid. And you know what he's going to do? Let me read to you from the last verse of the book of Malachi right? Your kid is going to be that prophet. Whoa, right? And he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So the verse, the second to last verse that we read in the Old Testament is that, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So remember, he's going to be just like Elijah. And then the key here in um, uh, verses 16 and 17, where he says he's going to make ready for the people a Lord prepared, uh, make ready for the Lord a people prepared, That's a quote from Isaiah. 
40, where it says, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight uh, in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill uh, made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. It's really hard for me not to sing that part, because that's part of Handel's Messiah. You know, and actually, last night, uh, all my podcasts are off because they're all about sports, you know? And I have nothing to fall asleep to. And after about two hours of laying in bed, I put on Handel's Messiah. And actually, this song popped up. And I was like, hey, I'm going to talk about that tomorrow, you know? Anyway, do you want me to sing it for you? No. No, you don't. Um, Anyway, (laughs) so there was this cultural practice in the ancient world where if a king was coming to your city, you would get the city ready. You know, you'd clean up the gate and you'd sweep the streets, I don't know, you know, whatever. You'd get rid of the big rocks from the middle of the road, you know, that would uh, get in the way of his cart or horse or whatever. And maybe we should have a king come to San Francisco. They fill all the potholes. Out of that, man. I had a pothole on my skateboard the other day that was like four feet deep. Oh, man. I almost, I don't know how I didn't fall. It was close. I was going fast, too. Anyway, (laughs) so this is what they would do. And this is what John is going to do. He's going to come first and he's going to get rid of the rocks and clear everything out to prepare the way for the king. Now, imagine for a sec. One of the things I think is very important as we read the Bible is to try to put ourselves in the story, remembering these are not fairy tales. These were real, actual people that this actually happened to. So imagine for a second that you're John. You're supposed to light the incense. You walk in, and this angel's standing there, and he tells you, you and your wife are going to have this miracle baby, and this baby's going to have this huge mission. How would you react? Probably stunned silence, right? I'd, be, I'd probably say, whoa, I don't know. Verse 18, look at what he does. And Zechariah, he said to the angel, uh, yeah, I'll do it. how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So do you remember, just like Abraham and Sarah, when they doubted, Sarah even laughed when they told her, you're going to have a baby. She was like, no, I'm not. You know, that's how Sarah reacted. That's basically what Zechariah does here. He's doubting. Prove it. That's what he says to the angel. Think about that. He just said to an angel, prove it. So look what the angel says, verse 19. Uh, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Basically saying, are you kidding me, dude? Do you know who I am? Do you remember the book of Daniel? He's like, that's me. I'm the guy from the book of Daniel, dummy. Um, the other day, I have a friend who was telling me this story. Um, there's, a, there's a pastor in uh, Hong Kong, and in his church, uh, there's a lot of like, very wealthy Hong Kong business people. One of them is the CEO of a very uh, uh, lucrative tech company, goes to this church. And so the pastor's son went up to the CEO one day and said, hey, I'm trying to get into uh, uh, an Ivy League university in America. Could you write me a recommendation letter, you know, because we're buds and we're in a small group or whatever? And the guy just told the kid, sure. And then after the service, he pulled the pastor aside and said, hey, I'm going to pay for your kid's whole tuition at this Ivy League school. What if the pastor had said, well, how do I know this is going to come true? <laughs> what, would the, what would the CEO have said? Do you know who I am, dummy? Right? I run this multi-billion dollar company. Of course it's going to come true. That's exactly what he's doing. By the way, the pastor did not say that. I think he cried and said thank you. Um, but this is exactly what he says here. Look, dude, how do you not believe me? All right, I'll prove it to you. You're going to be mute. Now, the word actually in Greek is a wider word. It can also mean, it can mean deaf, it can mean mute, or it can mean mute and deaf. 
And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. Just remember that. But either way, you're going to be all kinds of messed up. And everybody's waiting outside. Now, according to the Talmud, he was supposed to go in, light the incense, and then get out quickly, just in case he accidentally sinned while he was in there. You don't want to sin while you're in the holy place. And so he's like, all of a sudden, everybody's like, is he dead in there? What happened? You know, they're all checking their watches. They're outside waiting. They're wondering why it's taken so long. And then verse 22, he comes out of the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them. And he remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So he's supposed to walk out and speak the air. Um, the blessing of Aaron uh, from Numbers chapter 6. You know, may the Lord bless you and keep you and all that stuff. He's supposed to come out and put his hands up and say this to the crowd. And then he comes out and the crowd's waiting for it and he goes, you know, and everybody's screaming and, hey, say the blessing. And he goes, you know, can't. And he's making signs. I don't, I don't think they had sign language back then or, uh, you know, I don't know. He's trying to tell them what happened, and he's like, I saw an angel, you know, and they're like, what? He wants a chicken? Or like, they're trying to figure out what's going on. And they figure out, oh, maybe he saw this vision. And uh, <laughs> um, this was probably the only time in the history of the temple that that protocol was broken, by the way, where the guy came out and didn't speak that blessing. In verse 24, uh, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So he goes home after his time of service is over. And this is not like the virgin birth, which was a miracle conception. This is the, the miracle here is that they're both very old. But the conception and everything was just the normal way that two people conceive a kid. Um, and if you don't know how that works, I brought some dolls. No, I'm just kidding. Verse, okay, so, no, not really. Uh, okay, so now the story then shifts, right, from Jerusalem, and it shifts away like when you're in a movie, and the scene cuts. Verse 26, so in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, so the same guy, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. All right, here's the thing. So the sixth month now of Elizabeth's pregnancy, so we've jumped in time uh, in our story. Gabriel is sent by God, again, another mission, to Nazareth in Galilee. So what happens is, uh, away from the great city of Jerusalem, right, to Nazareth of Galilee. Um, there's a story in John chapter 1 that I think is hilarious, where Philip comes up to this, this guy, one of the other eventual disciples, Nathaniel, and he says to him, hey, I found the Messiah. Nathaniel goes, oh yeah, where, where? Oh, it's this guy, his name's Jesus, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel laughs, and he goes, can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? No way! He doesn't believe him just because of the town that he's from, Right? Let me tell you about Nazareth. Galilee, the region, was like the, the deep south of Israel, right, where all the rednecks lived and everything. I'll make fun of uh, where Mackenzie's from. What town are you from? What's it called? What is it? Gainesville, Georgia. Is it kind of big? What's the one where your parents moved to? Cedartown. Okay, so we went from San Francisco to Cedartown, Alabama, right? We've, most of us probably never even heard of Cedartown. That's kind of what's going on here, right? The Old Testament never mentions Nazareth. Outside of uh, the Bible, neither does really any rabbinic literature unless they're talking about Jesus. Um, this was an absolute nothing town. So we go from Jerusalem to this nothing town in verse 27 to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So her name is Mary, which is the Greek form of Miriam, Moses' sister. It was probably the most popular name for women at this time. It's why when you read the New Testament, 
you're like, why is everybody named Mary? You know, it's like the John, I guess, of the time, right? Everybody now is named John. There's a million of us. Uh, but what, you know, uh, everybody's named Mary. Now, here's the thing. She was probably, because of, we know of what, how this worked, she was probably between the ages of 12 and 16. She was young. A 16-year-old who wasn't married at this time would have been, like, pretty unusual, okay? And what, what's happening here is she's betrothed. So it's like, remember, their marriages were sort of arranged marriages. So she's passed, so first you're engaged your whole life, basically. Then you get to a point where you're like, okay, now we're going to get married. And you have your, what we would call engagement, was like their betrothal. Except to break a betrothal in this world, you needed a divorce. So this was sort of married, but not really. Like, right, you don't live together and you haven't been together and all that stuff yet. Okay? And so she's betrothed to this guy, Joseph of the house of David. I'm going to pass over this because we're going to get to this uh, in a few more sermons down the road. And the same with the, the it calls her a virgin. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So what happens to Mary? Verse 28. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, there's a Catholic prayer that stems from what I think is kind of a misreading of this verse. Have you heard this? Where they say, Hail Mary, full of grace. And the idea with that is that Mary has a lot of grace and she can dish that out and give that grace to other people. But I think that's a misreading. I think what this verse is actually saying is she's the recipient of God's grace, just like everybody else. And uh, next time in, the, in her song, if you read ahead, she calls Jesus her Savior. Why would, there's this Catholic doctrine where Mary was sinless. But why would she need a Savior if she's sinless? It just doesn't make her, she's not the giver of grace. She's a receiver of grace, just like everybody else. And so verse 29, so this angel shows up, um, and verse 29, she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So just like everybody else in Scripture, meets the angel, freaks out. But there's more to it. Because she's also just humbled and bothered by what he said to her, right? Hail, you know, I mean, no, that's the Catholic one. He shows up and he's like, oh, favored one, right? And she goes, what do you mean favored? Why is God giving me grace? What, what am I? I'm nothing, right? So if Mary was anything amazing, it's how humble she is. There is no part of this story or the whole life of Mary where we see her kind of going, yeah, that sounds about right. It's because I'm Mary, Right? There's none of that. She is probably one of the more humble people that we will ever read about in the scriptures. Um, and part of that is we don't read a lot about her. Right? She didn't make herself the center of the story. She, she did her part and her job, and she did it with humility because she knew she didn't even deserve what was given to her. Verse 30 continues. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So again, grace. She's been given grace by God. God is blessing her. Verse 31. How? And again, it's very similar to the Zechariah story. You will, uh, and behold, you will bear and conceive in your womb. Sorry, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call. You shall call his name Jesus. So again, we have another promised baby. Um, Jesus' name now means Jehovah is salvation or God is salvation. Right? It's the Greek form of the name Joshua from the Old Testament. So this kid now is going to be something special. What's he going to do? Verse thirty-two. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So he will be great. That's the first thing. John was great before the Lord. He will be great before the Lord. Jesus is not great in reference to something. He's just great. He's like the source of greatness, period, from within. And he's called the Son of the Most High. So he's going to be the Son of God in a special sense. Right? We're all children of God as believers, but Jesus is the Son of God, the one who inherits you know, the firstborn 
uh, the inheritor, right? And then he's going to inherit the throne of David. So we're going to talk about this a lot in the book of Luke. I'll just give you the quick uh, rundown. In 2 Samuel 7, another one of the more important chapters of the Bible, David looks outside and he realizes God's living in a tent. So he goes to the prophet and he says, hey, how come I have this nice house and God lives in a tent? I want to build God a house. And God comes back through the prophet and is like, no thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. I don't need your bloody hands building me. You know, David was a warrior king. I don't need your bloody hands building me a, t- a house. But I like the idea. So here's what I'm going to do, because your heart was in the right place. You wanted to build me a house. He, he flips it and uses the metaphor. I'm going to build you a house. And what he meant by that was the Messiah will come through the line of King David. Right? So God is going to build him a house. He's going to reign on the throne of David. That's what that means. He's going to be that one. And he's going to reign over God's people, reign over Jacob, and have this never-ending kingdom. This now is a reference to eternity, and it's what the end of the book of Revelation is about, how God is going to gather his people, Jesus, the King Jesus, right? He's going to gather his people into the new heavens and the new earth, and he's going to rule over them uh, in a perfect way for all of eternity. And this angel shows up to this girl in Nazareth and says, that kid, that's what he's going to do. Kind of a big deal, right? So how do you think Mary's going to react? Look at verse 34. And Mary said, how will this be? since I am a virgin. So let's point this out. First off, unlike Zechariah, she's not doubting. I don't think she's doubting. Zechariah basically said, nah, I don't think so. Prove it. Right? Mary says, whoa, that's cool, but how? I don't get it. And what she's saying is, because I'm still a virgin. Now, there's an attack from scholars on the virgin birth of Christ. This could be a whole series of sermons about the virgin birth of Christ. The attack from scholars goes like this. When you read the verse in Isaiah 7:14, right? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and all that stuff. The word virgin in Hebrew is wider than the idea of somebody who's not had sex before. It means just young girl in Hebrew. Well, so they say, this is not really what's going on in the New Testament. The problem is the New Testament picks up that idea and specifically says she's an actual virgin, right? So the word in Greek is a lot narrower. That's what it actually means, like what we would use the word virgin. Um, it's used twice in this verse. Um, Mary's question, how is this going to be since, you know, I've not really been with a man. Matthew says the same thing, right? So all over the New Testament, this idea is put there. And it's weird that this is what gets attacked because if God created the entire world, this is nothing, right? This is not the biggest miracle. It's cool. It's not the biggest miracle in the Bible. Creation is so much. So once you believe in a God who created, the rest of this stuff kind of like, oh yeah, okay, cool. If he created everything, he could do this whenever he wants. But what's the point of the virgin birth? What do we lose if we take the virgin birth away? Well, here's the thing. The Bible kind of talks about how the sin nature, fathers represent their families, Adam represents humanity, right? And that sin nature passes through uh, the fathers and so down to the children. So every one of us, right, we have a father. That's how it works. So we, we're passed on that sin nature. And so that's why it's kind of interesting and gross, but when Jesus, I'm sorry, when God talks to uh, Eve, uh, in Genesis 3.15, he's talking to the serpent. What he says is, um, the seed of the woman. But the problem is women, without getting too biological, I don't want to get the dolls out again, um, women don't have seed, if you can figure that out. So it's a really weird saying, right? And the idea is, if somebody could be born of a woman without a father, that sin nature wouldn't pass down. And so for Jesus to have to be born without this, uh, well, <laughs> marked by this sin nature, he needs to be born uh, through this holy, uh... <laughs> there you go, uh, yeah, no problem, uh, needs to be born of a virgin. So that's what we gain is 
a human who really is an actual human and understands everything that we're going through and can represent humanity, but also isn't tainted by the sin nature. So verse 35, this is what the angel says. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So this, uh, this what, what he says is you will be overshadowed. It's the same word that we read in the Transfiguration when it says the cloud kind of overshadowed all of them. And we don't know exactly how this works, but because of this virgin birth, this child will be called holy. He will be perfect. No sin nature. And verse 36, you notice she didn't ask for proof, like Zechariah kind of did. He was like, prove it. Right? Well, she doesn't. She just says, how? And she's confused. And the angel knows that she's confused. And so this is what he says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, and has also conceived a son, and it is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. He says, look, I know this is hard. It's a lot to take in. So what I want you to do is go see this crazy pregnant old lady. <laughs> and this old lady is crazy old, and she's pregnant. And once you see that, he says, that's another miracle that God has promised he would do. Then you can believe fully what's going to happen to you. Verse 38. And so Mary said, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. So servant there is bond slave, right? I'm a slave of the Lord. That's what she actually says. Mary is amazing. Think about it. The angel tells her that he is, uh, what he's going to do is going to cause her a lot of trouble, right? In the first century world, showing up pregnant was no light matter, right? They had this practice where if uh, they caught a woman in adultery or whatever, having sex outside of marriage, uh, they would take her outside of the city uh, and they would stone her to death and then they would take the body outside the city and they would bury her and then plant a tree on top of her body as a warning to other people. Right? That's pretty messed up. Um, and so if you went to a city that had a lot of trees outside the city, you knew it was a really shady place. Thanks. Let's pray. That's the end of the sermon. I just needed to tell that joke. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're welcome for that. Feel free to tell all your friends at school. Oh, you're not allowed to go to school. No, but her, her, um, so, oh, not really. I wasn't really. I was just joking. I still have like five more minutes. <laughs> now, here's her actual response was, I'm a slave of the Lord, which means he can do whatever he wants to me. Think about that. God comes and says, I'm going to ruin your life. And she's like, cool. And she says, why me? Why do I get this blessing? Imagine if God came to you and says, hey, I'm going to ruin your life. I'm going to do it because I'm God and I have a good idea of what I'm doing. How many of us would be like, cool, God, I'm, I'm your slave, right? She is an absolutely amazing woman of faith, and she's like 14 years old. It blows my mind. So here's the thing. Let's take a look at what Luke has done here. What he's done is actually brilliant. He's given us two very similar stories. Whenever you read two similar stories back to back in the Bible, you're supposed to kind of read them together and compare and contrast them. And so... Uh, when we take that approach, we see sort of this brilliant picture that Luke has painted. So what's similar in these stories? We have the, the angel Gabriel, same angel. We have Zechariah and Mary, both scared by the angel. We have two very unlikely pregnancies, old and young, right? Old and a virgin. An announcement of the boy, uh, of what he will be and uh, his name and all that before the conception. Um, you know, both kids are named by the angel, which was a huge deal in the ancient world. So that's what's similar, but what's different? Well, let's look at this. Zechariah and Elizabeth both belong to this line of priests, which was a pretty important thing. Right? What is said about Mary? 
background. Mary's specific background, nothing. She's marrying a guy from the line of David, which is cool. But about Mary, we don't really learn anything. Right? Zachariah and Elizabeth are blameless before the Lord. Right? They're righteous before the Lord. What do we know about Mary? Nothing. She's the recipient of grace. Zachariah is at the temple and he's praying. What is Mary doing when the angel shows up? I don't know. doesn't say. Right? Zachariah is a priest for a job. Right? He's, a, he's this priest doing the Lord's work. What is Mary doing? Nothing. She's just getting ready to be married. In society, he's important. She's a nothing. Right? Zechariah is in Jerusalem, at the top of the mountain, at the top of the temple, in the holy place when the angel visits him. Where is Mary? In some bodunk town in the middle of nowhere, doing nothing. Right? Do you see what Luke is doing? Zechariah's situation is way up here, and Mary's is low. And what he does is he moves the narrative from the high to the low, from the lofty to the humble. But here's the thing. That breaks down when you look at the babies. All of a sudden, it flips. What's John's job? Right? Look at John and Jesus. What's John's job? To get everybody ready for the king. Right? John's conception is improbable. Jesus is impossible. John is great before the Lord. Jesus is great. John's the son of Zechariah. Jesus is the son of the Most High God. John will be a prophet. Jesus will be a king. And so what does this tell us? That God works in ways that are not like our ways. And this whole story is meant to show us. From the very get-go, God wants you to know, in the book of Luke, this is not going to work the way that you would do it. God is not going to work that way. Isaiah 55, I don't think I have a slide for this, says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so this is going to be a key theme in the book of Luke. God's ways are not like ours. At the end of Malachi, we're told this forerunner is going to come, and he's going to set things up for the king. And then 400 and something years go by, waiting, waiting, waiting. You could imagine the level of anticipation. And then all of a sudden, it happens. The king is coming, and it's like nothing you'd expect. The mother of the king isn't a queen or even a leader. Jesus won't be born into a priestly family. His mother is this humble, unwed teenage girl, and he's not going to grow up in Jerusalem in the center. He's going to grow up in the country. Right, in Nazareth, in this sort of a truck stop town. And so it tells us how God works. Human nature values power and strength. Right? Human kingdoms are built on domination, like the evil system of Babylon that we talk about a lot. Um, one of the major things, themes, then, of the book of Luke is that the kingdom of God is completely and utterly different. And we're going to continually flush this out as we read this book together. Right? Luke sets it up, though, right away. The kingdom of God is not like Babylon. It's about humility and love and service, right? And the kingdom of God doesn't value the same things that we do. Right? And so, uh, as we read in the Gospel of Luke, I want you to specifically take note of that. Where uh, does this upside-down kingdom happen? Can I explain what you, I mean by that? In a normal pyramid structure of authority, right, you have, think of a pyramid, Right at the top is that top little triangle, and everybody else is supporting him. You know, that's how it works. Well, the upside-down kingdom says, no, we're going to flip it, where Jesus is at the bottom supporting everybody else. And so in the kingdom of God, you're trying to work your way towards Jesus. Work your way to the bottom. And the greatest example, then, of this upside-down kingdom is the cross. And we'll read about this in the book of Luke. The cross of Jesus is the greatest example. Right? Because the king does not, he dies on the cross of a criminal to benefit his people. There's no greater way to serve his people. 
You know those movies with the medieval battles where uh, the, the battle starts to go poorly and all the knights surround the king? Save the king, save the king. You know, have you ever seen that? And they're just like, make sure the king doesn't die. Well, here's the thing. That's, the, that's Babylon. That's the way the world works. Those on the bottom support those on the top. But the kingdom of Jesus is the flip. The king dies to save his people. It's so backwards. There's nowhere else that we see something like this. So what's the challenge? Well, here's what I want you to do. Um, here's what I want you to think about is, what kingdom are you living in? Right now, in everyday life, which kingdom are you living in? Are you living in the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, or are you living in some other kingdom? And if you find yourself living in some other kingdom, you're not a follower of Jesus, or you are, and you're just wavering or whatever, um, I want you to think about the kingdom that you're living in. And I want you, because here's the thing, living in the kingdom of Babylon is exhausting. And living that, that way where you have to always push your way to the top and everybody else has to serve you truly is exhausting. And it will never actually satisfy you. So when you get to the point where you realize that, then start to look into the kingdom of Jesus, the upside down kingdom. And that's what we want to do in the book of Luke. So here's your homework. I see a lot of you got those little notebooks uh, and your Bibles and everything. Here's what I want you to do, because we're going to have some time off. This was not in my plan. I have something else here, so I'm not even going to read that. Um, I want you to go, and during the time off between whenever we meet, because we're probably not going to meet for the next few weeks, I want you to read the whole book of Luke. 24 chapters. I mean, you can do it. You know, there's been a few times where I read it in an afternoon, you know, sit down and read it. It's really fascinating, right? And what I want you to do is in the margin of your Bible or your little book there, Every time you see an example of the upside-down kingdom, I want you to draw an upside-down triangle in the margins next to it. I did this once, and my whole book of Luke is filled with these upside-down triangles in my Bible that I write in. And so examples of this, right, are every time you think this person gets blessed, but it's this person. Every time you think uh, Jesus would do this, and he does something for the poor, the marginalized, the outsider. Every time you see something that's not the way the kingdom of the world does it, but the kingdom of Jesus, put that little triangle in your Bible. And then just spend time praying about those things. And then next time we do eventually come back, we're going to read Mary's song together. Amen? All right, let's pray.